to put a tax on just the small percentage of houses that are being built currently to support all the infrastructure that needs to go to build it, I think it needs a rethink based on the fact that low supply of housing is not just a problem for the incremental purchaser, but it's a problem for everybody. It's not, it's not just a problem for people buying new housing, it's a problem for everybody. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, Sam Golamani, who is the Managing Director and General Counsel at Bayview Group. Really excited to have Sam on the podcast today. I know Sam is very busy. So Sam, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good, delighted to be here, Mateo. Thanks for having me on. That's very good. So Sam, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm Managing Director and General Counsel at Bayview Group. Uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're a family business. So it started with my father um, and uh, mother uh, with a single motel in the 1980s. Um, so I'm kind of second generation. I grew up with the business. So from the single motel we had in the outskirts of Ottawa in a town called Cornwall, it's grown to nine properties with... Um, uh, you know, mostly hotel and uh, now multifamily. Uh, we're doing a, a bunch of multifamily development in Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, and we also run the, you know, this hotel portfolio, which is mostly Hilton branded product. So my my story is quite tied to my family business. I, I have a background in, in law. So I, I got my, uh, it, it did law school in Toronto uh, at uh, Osgood, And then um, shortly after completing my articles to get my licensing. I joined the family business uh, full-time. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I, I, one more thing to mention, uh, I'm um, I, I happily married uh, with uh, two kids, uh, both of which are under two. So uh, not much sleep yet in this household. <laughs> that is very good. So you grew up watching the family business develop. You're a lawyer as well. So how does being a lawyer help with your role as managing director for your real estate family business. What I wrote in my my law school application was that I'm going to be a businessman first and add law on as a unique skill that you know not every business person has. And I kind of stayed true to that. L- lawyers talk a lot about they have an expression like swords and shields. I don't know if you've heard that. You know, the, 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 sometimes you can use a legal principle as either a sword or a shield. Um, and, uh, in, in, in my, in my career, uh, I kind of use both. So swords in the sense of, uh, you know, getting involved in litigation, if that ever happens, um, mostly shields. So setting up good defenses, understanding the regulatory environment, having good contracts. Um, so, uh, the role of any good in-house counsel is to keep their client out of court, uh, not, uh, uh, not to to try to win uh, every fight, um, but to try to keep us out of fights um, from the beginning. So swords and shields, and then I, I'd add one thing to that, which is that you know um, a, a sword, shield, and, and, and a compass. Um, and the compass part is that you know having the legal training gives you a uh, very good filter uh, and very good lens to which to look at the world. Because it helps you, uh, it helps it helps you learn, helps you uh, accumulate knowledge that's relevant to your business, 
and that can help actually guide strategy. Uh, you know, well, you know, where do you, where do you want to develop, for example? Um, you know, what should the strategy be for financing? Um, so I think that that having the legal background it helps um, to formulate those plans. Um, and then um, as well, you know, the overarching professionalism and ethics uh, that come with being a lawyer have served me well uh, in my business career. That's very good. I love your analogy there. So sword, shield, and compass. That's awesome. So there was an article that mentioned how you engaged with community stakeholders in Canada. So it was a complex permitting process. So you obviously had to adjust some of your plans. Why did you take this approach? And could you have taken any other approach? Yeah. So let me explain a little bit about the the context there and what happened uh, just for the benefit of your listeners. So we had a we had a development application in uh, for a 800 unit uh, development, which we had originally acquired the land uh, about nine acres from the city of Ottawa. And uh, that land was planned. It was always planned for development. Um, and, uh, you know, part of it was for high density. Part of it was for kind of low rise or mid rise. Um, and uh, but, you know, even though we bought it from the city of Ottawa, it doesn't mean that you have your approval right away. You still need to go through the normal process of, you know, getting your zoning entitlements. And as we were doing that, um, one issue that got raised was that, um, you know, uh, we were close to one of the neighborhoods uh, that neighborhood wanted a bigger setback and they didn't want very tall buildings uh, close to their site, close to their, their locale there. So even though the site, you know, was appropriate for development, according to policy, you know, we had some, we had some local uh, neighborhood groups, um, you know, express their concern about, you know, shadowing uh, heights. And this is all very typical of any uh, development application. Um, any, any developer uh, will, will have a similar story to this one. Uh, what was unique in this case was that we you know we found an opportunity. So we had a right behind us was a park, Bill Teron Park, um, uh, which is quite a bit larger than our site. And so you know we worked on uh, doing uh, a bit of a trade off where we said, okay, you know instead of having instead of having uh, the site really spread out, uh, what we'll do is uh, the buildings very spread out over the site. What we'll do is we'll tighten up the footprints. Uh, you know we'll we'll be able to set back a little more, go a little bit higher. Uh, but what that will let us do is it'll actually allow us to bring on the public uh, park onto our private land. And, you know, recognizing the advantage of that site, you know, you, unique advantage of that site was that it backs right onto the park. And so why not bring the park onto our land? And um, ultimately, that's the way that we went. Uh, we did with the support of our neighbors um, and uh, the local councillor and, you know, city planning staff, as well as the urban design review panel. Um, so, you know, uh, it was a, it was a kind of a win, 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 uh, in the sense that, you know, we were able to get, uh, you know, get our density target, um, get a public park onto private land, uh, and, you know, make everyone happy in, in the meantime. So, uh, we were, we were certainly pleased with that outcome. That's very good. I love your approach there. So as you mentioned, shadowing and height, uh, a lot of developers have to deal with that. Is that a big deal from a developer's perspective? A community is just being petty? Yeah, look, I think, you know, ultimately, um, we live in a democracy. Uh, that democracy elects leaders who set policy. And so throughout a process of, of uh, development, you know, even if a particular plot of land from a policy perspective should be developed, we still have a democratic process where everybody gets to express their opinion. 
ultimately policy should win the day. Like if that site should get developed because the overall community needs the housing, then ultimately democracy wins, right? That's that's democracy in action. But it's a messy process. And sometimes the most uh, vocal voices, even if they're in a very small minority, can interrupt that process. But that doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be heard, right? And that also doesn't mean that uh, alternative solutions uh, can't be worked out. And this is a, a very good example of that. Wow. I know you own your family business, but I think every developer should consult you on how to deal with communities because you definitely handled that very well. And I love your response about democracy and it being a process. That's awesome. Okay, so given your, obviously your legal background, you have a good understanding of planning law, which has to do with the Planning Act. If you had two or three items that you feel could be changed or adjusted in the Planning Act to make development a little bit more efficient, what would these items be? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question, Mateo. I, I think if you'd asked me coming out of law school, you know, learning all about the Planning Act, I probably wouldn't have an answer. Um, my my answer is actually based on uh, the limited experience uh, that I've had in the U.S. Um, so you know, we had a we were involved in a development there where uh, it was a it was a downtown U.S. city. Um, uh, a major U.S. city, and uh, we had uh, that that application was for a 12-story building on a vacant piece of land, and we went from you know not having any entitlements to build it to having our building permit in hand in like eight months, uh, six to eight months, uh, and uh, that was a you know if you if you take a similar kind of city in Ontario. Uh, and try to do the same thing, I think you'd probably be looking at three years. So, so then the question I, I asked myself, and, and, you know, Compo is a good example of that. Like, you know, we had, um, you know, we had policy support, but it still took us uh, three and a half years to pull a permit. Um, so, uh, but, okay, so then the question is, well, what, what are they doing differently there? Um, and some of the things uh, we were moving in the right direction. So, for example, having strong mayor powers, uh, that's moving in the right direction. Um, in in the planning act, you know the way our planning act works is kind of backwards because uh, it's not like you get entitled land out of the planning act. What happens is there's a hierarchy of instruments. So you've got the provincial policy statement, which is overarching. Then underneath that, you've got the official plan, and official plans have to um, have to correspond with uh, or you know conform with provincial policy statements. And, uh, and then there's zoning, which is underneath official plan. And what you get when you buy a piece of property is you usually, usually get zoning that's underzoned. So then you now need to go and make an application to the city to say, well, look, this zoning is not consistent with your official plan. Please amend the zoning. Um, in the U.S., it's not like that. You just When you buy land, the zoning comes with it. Like the zoning is, is done by the city in advance in accordance with you know, their official planning documents. Um, so it's not the onus is not put on developers for each uh, for each land for each piece of land you know to go and bring this uh, through um, through a process with the city uh, to get it actually zoned. So I think that's a major step is having as of right zoning, um, and we have the tools we have the tools for that because you know the cities are already doing official plans every five to ten years. You know, uh, the policy is there in terms of where do we want to build, um, you know, how tall, what are the design guidelines. So all we need to do now is take the next step and just codify that into zoning. 
Um, the second thing is uh, site plan control. So, you know, in, in, in the U.S. city I was talking about, there's no site plan control. Once you get your zoning, that's all you need for zoning. Then you go get your permit. Um, in in Ontario, we have we have two processes. We have zoning and we have site plan. And now site plan, the powers have been reduced. Um, city's powers have been reduced in terms of site plan applications or site plan control um, to reduce uh, how much control they have over things. But I think that uh, a lot of the site plan rules that cities look for can simply be codified into zoning and you can skip a step as opposed to having to, you know, even so even if you have well, all that to say, even if you have fully zoned land and I have a building like this, uh, you still need to go through a site plan process, which could take a year, um, you know, even if your density is OK. So that's the second thing is eliminating or codifying site plan control. The third thing I'd recommend is, and this doesn't have as much to do with the Planning Act, but it, it's kind of related. So it's the Development Charges Act. And um, on on your show, uh, uh, before you're talking about, um, you know, having, uh, you know, municipal utility districts. So that has very much to do with the Development Charges Act uh, and, you know, could be amended in there. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I, I'd like to say about that is that, you know, we have a principle in Ontario planning, which is that growth should pay for growth. The idea being that when you're building new infrastructure to support additional housing, ultimately the funds for that infrastructure, like your sewers, your sanitary um, parks, for example, should come from the new developments itself. And I think that was a good policy for a long time, but I think it now needs to be re-examined because to put a tax on just the small percentage of houses that are being built currently uh, to support all the infrastructure that needs to go to build it, um, I think it, it it needs a rethink based on the fact that uh, low supply of housing is not just a problem for the incremental purchaser, but it's a problem for everybody. It's not it's not just a problem for people buying new housing; it's a problem for everybody. And so, having some of that tax shifted as a more broad-based tax, uh, either in property tax or some other way. Um, and maybe it doesn't have to be all of it, but I, I think that that would go a long way to um, to alleviating some of the supply pressure that uh, developers are, are facing. Made very good points. You mentioned about the current Planning Act being backward, and you also touched on municipal utility districts. So from a legal perspective, what would it take to implement that in Ontario to start with? I'm I'm not as experienced with that, Matteo. That we haven't done one, so I'm hesitant to to um, to go that far into it. Um, I think that the answer would probably be something to do with the front ending agreements that um, are already provided for in the Development Charges Act. But you know, without having hands on experience with it, I'm I'm hesitant to to say more. Okay, and your first two points your suggestions, what would it take to implement those and what's preventing it? It's fairly simple in theory how to implement it. I think what would have to happen is uh, official plans would get, would you know, that and that official plan process would get beefed up into a rezoning process. Uh, nothing legal is stopping it. Uh, in fact, here, I mean, we, we need a legislative amendment, but uh, what I mean is that, you know, under Bill 23, uh, there are already pushes in the directions of having upzoned land. So for example, in Bill 23, uh, it was legislated that where an official plan calls for increased density in an MTSA, the zoning for those MTSAs, that's the uh, major transit station areas, uh, 
the zoning should be updated and uh, in order to uh, reflect that official plan intent. The reality is that in order to actually do that, uh, it takes a lot of effort from city staff uh, who bear the brunt of uh, you know whatever policies are implemented at the high level. And they have to actually go and draft these things. And, you know, it's a lot easier to say, okay, in the official plan, you know, we're saying we want up to up to 20 stories in this area. Um, that's not that hard to write in an official plan. What's a lot more complicated is drafting the zoning for it. That, okay, if you need, if you want 20 stories, what exactly does that look like? What are your floor plates? What are your setbacks? Um, how does that, you know, interact with site plan, um, you know, codified rules? So zoning is a lot harder to write than than official plan density targets, and that's just the reality of you know doing things in detail. At the same time, you know we have a we have a housing crisis, and um, a lot of effort I, I think needs to be put in. Um, so you know if we if we ever need a leadership on this issue, now is the time. That is very good. So talking about uh, housing crisis, uh, so in New York. They implemented a new rule where rentals shorter than 30 days are only allowed if hosts register with the city. What do you think of this rule? And is this something that you see coming to places like Toronto or Ottawa? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's funny, you know, I think in in uh, during the pandemic um, or even before the pandemic, a lot of hotels were complaining about Airbnbs. And the reason was because, you know, they rent out for two or three nights. They compete with hotels but they wouldn't pay any of the taxes that hotels pay. They wouldn't pay HST, um, they wouldn't pay, or they wouldn't charge HST and they wouldn't charge the municipal accommodations taxes that you know most major cities have to, you know, hotels in most major cities have to charge. So, um, you know, the, the, the government, I think did the right thing in that case where they leveled the playing field and said, okay, you know, if you're gonna rent under 28 days or 30 days, you have to register, you have to charge MAT, uh, you have to remit it. Um, so I think that was a good step. Uh, now, you know, in now we have a housing crisis. And so, you know, uh, what you're hearing now is from the housing community, the housing advocates, and even the development community saying that, well, hang on a second, you know, if we if we're having uh, huge rent escalations, and huge price increases, you know, why are all of these units sitting outside of the inventory, uh, which would otherwise be, you know, good for our community um, and frankly our, our voting base uh, to to live and reside in um, as opposed to you know, having Airbnbs available for people outside of the jurisdiction uh, who by the way don't vote um, so uh, I think the politics is reacting to that um, you know I, I think all these things are, are good conversations to have um, like I said before the democratic process is messy um, ultimately, you know, these are things that have big policy implications, you know, wiping out, you know, a huge chunk of your rental inventory and handing it over to an Airbnb platform maybe isn't the right thing right now. Um, so I think that I think that that's getting uh, deserved attention right now. Amazing. The democratic process is messy, as you mentioned. <laughs> that's very good. Your family is involved in the development of both hotels and multifamily. What are the key differences between multifamily development and hotel development? Yeah, I think the one that jumps out is that there's no brand. 
Um, so, you know, with a hotel, usually if you're building a hotel, it's going to be a branded property uh, if you want it to be financed. And so when we build hotels uh, with a brand, uh, you know, it comes with a thousand page manual, uh, you know, down to, you know, what every teaspoon should look like. So there's a little bit more uh, handcuffing, like you, you have to do what the brand says um, in order to achieve their vision of what that product and service should look like. But uh, on the other hand, you also have a lot of guidance from the hotels, uh, from the brands uh, as to how to achieve, uh, you know, what what they've experienced as product success. And so uh, your certainty of success is a little bit more because in order for your product to ring true with your customer, you've got a guide. With multifamily, you're a little on your own. So you have to really be receptive to uh, understanding your customer and responsive to uh, giving them uh, what they want. So, and, and that uh, is especially true in terms of service and quality. You know, when we build multifamily, we do it with a hotel lens. So we're looking at finishes, we're looking at details. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, putting ourselves through uh, the same level of detail and scrutiny that uh, the brands would otherwise do because no one else is performing that function. We have to do it. And then uh, the, the other thing, you know, with multifamily is your, your customer, when they're looking at your building, they're not deciding whether to be there for two nights. And, you know, if it's not a good experience, uh, okay, that's not a big deal. Your customer's very discerning. They're going to live there. So you want to make sure that you have the right amenities that are going to speak to your customer. And that once you have your customer, that they feel a sense of community in the building uh, once they're living there um, so that, uh, you know, they don't, they don't leave you for the next guy um, that builds a, a new multifamily building. Um, so to create that customer stickiness. Um, but uh, there are uh, certainly a lot of parallels and a lot of differences as well. I know you touched on this a little bit. So what's the advantage of viewing multifamily development from a lens of developing a hotel? We uh, develop hotels, we own hotels, we operate hotels. And that's kind of the business that we all grew up in. It's a very service-oriented uh, culture. and. Um, Every detail matters. The buildings that that were built, um, you know, as we as we were growing up, like you know, the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, a lot of those were rent. They were all they're all rent control buildings. Um, you know, you, you think about um, what kind of service culture those buildings had, and you know, probably you, you'd call your property manager if you had a problem in the unit, and um, otherwise you'd hope never to hear from them. Uh, you know, we want we want our buildings uh, to feel like to feel like home, um, but al but also to feel like you're taken care of. Um, so we bring a lot of the service culture that you know we learned growing up in the hotel business, um, and also the product quality, and try to implement that in 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 uh, multifamily. And uh, we think that's given us that that's been a great um, uh, you know that that strategy has worked out very well for us. Um, you know, generally speaking. Our customers uh, are very happy in the buildings that uh, we operate, and uh, they stay with us for longer than than you know what's market average. So you know we're excited about building on that trajectory. That is very good. So managing risk is critical in real estate development. How does your legal expertise play a role in mitigating these risks? So risk comes from a few different directions. You know, there's risks that you can foresee, uh, and there's risks that you can't. And uh, so the risks that we can foresee, you know, regulatory risk, counterparty risk, what do we do about those? We pay attention to the regulations. We don't just let regulation come to us, but, you know, we're actively engaged. Uh, we're part of the democratic process. 
you know, that, that helps us to, you know, both foresee changes that are coming, um, also uh, in some limited cases, influence policy. And um, then there's also counterparty risk. Um, and how do you manage that? Well, you have good contracts, right? Good fences make good neighbors. And, you know, uh, having a legal background helps with that. But there are also these risks that you can't control. How do you foresee a pandemic, right? Well, you can't, um, uh, unless you're one of the select few who, who did. But, you know, the vast majority, you can't. There are ways to mitigate those risks as well. And basically, that boils down to having low leverage, managing debt, uh, having some bench strength, uh, meaning some cash uh, for rainy day. And those are business principles that we learned growing up, uh, you know, seeing the family business grow up. Uh, that preceded my law degree, but have proven very valuable. That is very good. And how do you approach sustainability from a legal standpoint? We're a private company, which means we don't deliberately do ESG reporting as a requirement. We're not required to. But having said that, so for this Compo project, we have a geothermal system. Uh, for another project we're doing, we're going to have a solar um, you know, solar system. Uh, these are things that we did because A, they made sense. B, they were a good thing to do. So, you know, in the case of that compo uh, project, uh, 90, 95% of the natural gas that would have been burned uh, if we didn't have a geothermal system now won't be burned. And so that's uh, it's a huge reduction in the negative externality of, of development. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we as developers have to see ourselves as having uh, a big responsibility when you put a building up, uh, it's not just for you and for your tenants, but it, it does have externalities. Everyone sees your building. Um, you know, it has a public effect. Um, you know, whether uh, whether you, you know you're you're charging for it or, or you're not, but it has a public effect. And so we we take that seriously. Um, so from a legal standpoint, um, there's different parts to this. There's you know making sure that we're qualifying for uh, the credits uh, you know where they're due. So for example, with that geothermal system. Um, you know, we may have some credits uh, due back from to us uh, with uh, the federal government's budget announcement for tax credits. And uh, there's also other programs out there for financing that, uh, you know, through CMHC. Same goes for solar. So there's there's that, which is kind of the stuff we're doing today. Uh, and then uh, there's tomorrow, which is, okay, um, you know, how are you looking at um, future regulation? Because like I mentioned, private companies right now, you know, we don't have any ESG requirements. But they are there for public companies. And we expect that, you know, in some time, it may take some time, but ESG uh, will come to private companies too. And there will be requirements for, for example, uh, you know, making sure that you've explored all the options uh, to reduce your carbon footprint. And that goes for operations, but it also goes for, you know, waste management and, uh, you know, building with uh, materials that um, can be easily recycled, you know, reducing waste. You know, that regulation is coming. You know, maybe not next year, but the trends are certainly going that way. And so then the question becomes, what are we doing today to prepare ourselves for that future? So I think that looking forward at that makes us uh, a little bit more conscientious today about how we're addressing, uh, you know, some of these um, sustainability things. Okay. So as a private company, the main motivating factor is the incentives that are provided to go green or be sustainable. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, everything you do has to underwrite. So you have to do some kind of analysis to make it work. And nobody's twisting our arm, you know, to do a geothermal system. Uh, it has to make sense. Now, if you looked at it 10 years ago, you know, you know, nobody was really doing geothermal systems. Uh, you know, now uh, the industry is looking um, a lot more carefully at 
opportunities like that. And um, uh, uh, I think that what you need to do is keep looking at, at opportunities and uh, testing whether they underwrite. Because if you don't even bother to look, then you won't find those opportunities. Okay. And what would you tell a private company that's really not interested in sustainability? What would you tell them to encourage them to be more sustainable? Yeah, I think I think I think two two things. So there's the t- there's the today and there's the tomorrow. I think what I tell them today is that you're missing out on you're you're certainly missing out on opportunities to you know have a, a positive return on some of these things. Um, especially considering the policy push today on getting some of these things going. And uh, the second thing I'd say is that for tomorrow, um, this regulation may not be here today, but tomorrow it's coming. So get ready. That's good. Very good points. Well, uh, Sam, it's been great chatting with you. I love the way you articulate your points from a legal standpoint, which is very awesome. I have to go back and listen again to the conversation. Really appreciate it, Mateo. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, So you have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.